Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. On January 16th, 2007, everything was about to change for mixtape king DJ Drama and his business partner, Don Cannon. The Fulton County Sheriff's SWAT team, along with Clayton County officials, stormed into DJ Drama's Gangsta Grills recording studio and cleaned the place out. Drama was at his studio in Atlanta working on his first album. We spoke to him in Atlanta for this podcast. And I got a phone call from a homeboy who's had a relative that worked in law enforcement in Atlanta. And they were like, yo, I just got a call that they are about to come over there and raid Drama's studio. And I thought it was a mistake. Like, they're not coming to raid my studio. Like, the fuck they raid my studio for? At the time, DJ Drama was a huge figure in the hip-hop world, helping stars like Lil Wayne, T.I., and Young Jeezy soar to new heights of popularity. I went outside, and as I was walking outside, these fucking black Tahoes with sirens come from all directions and just, like, jump the curb, drive right up to me. Men with M16s jump out from all angles and... Start screaming that shit, get on the ground, don't move, put your hands up, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, all right. Drama was told he was being arrested for bootlegging and racketeering under the RICO laws. They took us in separate cars, me and Ken, and they took us down to the jail. And I remember sitting there and like somebody saying to me, like, yo, you on TV. Though no other illegal activity was found, authorities say counterfeiting CDs typically goes hand in hand with other crimes. They had the helicopters had came. They had raided the studio, you know, they tore it apart, talking about, you know, where the drugs and the guns. And then they went on the news and was like, we confiscated 80,000 mixtapes. So it was crazy. The RICO law is like what they use for crime bosses, you know, Al Capone or, you know, real criminal organizations per se. Like, you know, I was fucking making mixtapes. This raid would fundamentally change hip hop. And even though it happened in the U.S. South, hundreds of miles from Drake's hometown of Toronto, it ultimately set the stage for Drake to launch his career. I'm Ty Harper, and this is Not a Drake Podcast, a series about hip-hop and how its journey to mainstream dominance gave us Drake in the first place. Mixtapes have always been a calling card for DJs, a critical link between hip-hop artists and their fans, a point of access for hip-hop heads back when there were limited platforms to hear the music they loved, and a way to tap into the latest dope track in a genre that develops faster than albums can actually be produced. And as hip-hop evolved from a grassroots movement to a global cultural phenomenon, the mixtape evolved with it. In this episode, we look at how So Far Gone fits into that evolution of the mixtape. In February of 2009, two years after DJ Drama's studio was raided by police, Drake dropped his third mixtape, So Far Gone, with atmospheric, moody, down-tempo tracks like this one, 
Gmail.com. I'm just so far gone. October zone. Please leave me alone. It didn't have a cosign from a DJ like Drama. It was mostly distributed online, and it sounded like an album. Rapper J. Cole put it well. But what happened was the game changed the minute Drake dropped So Far Gone. After So Far Gone, it was clear mixtapes were no longer a place to just show off your skills. The game yeah. instantly changed yeah. because I got to come and play my best hand too because yeah. he came clearly came with his, you know what I mean? As far as So Far Gone goes, I'm still in awe, you know? Here's Drake from back then in 2009. And I'm still humbled again by by the the amount of people that took the time to download it it's something i'm i'm very taken aback by you know because i used to be so uh self-conscious about the strikes against me like you know coming from canada and being on a tv show and being like you know super light-skinned you know this is some mad like you know this is things you used to be like oh is this gonna work but uh now it just it, it gives me a chance to really accept that I am, I am something different. I am something new. Um, and, and now it's just, uh, I see it more as an opportunity to really be like, well, maybe I don't have to be the next Ye or I don't have to be the next Wayne. I could just be the first Drake. To appreciate how Drake, an up-and-coming artist from Toronto, could catapult his career on the strength of a mixtape and without a record deal, we need to go back to the beginning. And like hip-hop itself... The mixtape began in the parks of Harlem, Queens, Brooklyn, and the Bronx. Let's say you live in a city like New York and you got the Cold Crush and they're doing their park jams, right? And then they record it. So someone gets a recording of that recording and they let someone else record it. DJ Mars is the co-author of The Art Behind the Tape, a book about the history of mixtapes. He's also a highly respected DJ in his own right, who, among many other successful artists, worked with OutKast at the very beginning of their career. I feel like that was kind of where hip-hop started in terms of how it got passed along. I don't think the term mixtape was used. I remember as a kid, like... 80, 81, someone coming from around the way with, yo, I got this Cold Crush tape. And it would be some 50th generation copy. So by the time it got to me, this little eight, nine-year-old kid around the way, it was probably one of the worst renditions of that particular tape that you could get. But that's how we got it. Hip-hop wasn't really being played on the radio. So if you wanted to get your hands on new material, it was these DIY recordings. And as demand grew, the mixtape evolved. From Park Jam recordings to DJs mixing and blending tracks together. All right, now we want all you noise makers in the house. Want you to make some noise out there. I can't hear you. They came up with creative themes, turntable techniques, and customized tapes with shout-outs to local consumers, the way Brucey e. B did on his Rooftop Club mixtapes. This was a way for DJs to differentiate themselves from other DJs, all while elevating the art form. We're into the sound of Brucey e. B, baby, dog. Cool mic in the place to be, eh? A DJ would be in a club and he's spinning and he would have his tapes with him 
and he would sell them while he was spinning. The mixtape economy was independent and underground, and tapes were distributed through street vendors and mom and pop shops rather than chain stores. My favorite mixtape of all time would probably be Kid Capri Old School Part Two. What made that tape so crazy is while all the other DJs are putting all the new stuff on a tape, he made a tape with the with classic R and B. Like the start of side two was like three or four Jackson Five joints. Then he put before I let go. Now, Kid Capri is not just passively playing songs back-to-back on this tape. He's actually inserting his own creativity in the way he plays those songs. Here, he scratches and manipulates the intro of Frankie Beverly and Maze's Before I Let Go in several ways. He beat-juggles the instrumentation, but he also scratches and pulls back the first line of the song, which increases the tension and excitement for his audience before he finally releases it so the song can play. That tape taught you a couple of things. Taught a DJ how to play an old school set. Like nine times out of 10, it was inspired by what Capri did on that tape. He did it in a fly way, like he's cutting, he's scratching, he's talking. It physically taught you how to rock. The stuff he said, how he used each record to get into the next record, how he talked in between songs and used the punchlines to his advantage. No. It really taught you how to DJ. The best mixtapes show DJs acting as host, as curator, and as skillful turntable manipulator. And by playing songs in ways you'd never heard before, the DJ became the focal point of the tapes. You had DJs like the legendary Ranji from Harlem's Polo Grounds, popularizing the blending of vocals over hip-hop beats. Think Tribe Called Quest and the Phil Collins record. You had Duop from the Bronx, a DJ with a reputation for collecting the cream of New York's hip-hop MCs on the same tape. Countless other notable mixtape DJs like Tony Touch would be inspired by this approach, but Duop's 95 Live mixtape did it first. So bow to the mixtape, Royal Highness. I told you once, I told you twice. Duop is New York's finest DJ slash MC. And then you had Queens' own DJ Clue, who spearheaded the trend of DJs featuring exclusive, unreleased, and brand new tracks from future superstar rappers before anyone else had heard these songs. Getting your hands on these physical mixtapes, especially if you wanted them early, meant traveling to New York, whether it was 125th Street in Harlem, Fulton Street in Brooklyn, or Canal Street in Manhattan. You know, the, the, the hot spot really was the point where uh, Little Italy and Chinatown connect. It was the intersection of uh, Mulberry Ave and Canal Street that was really the most memorable and, and most impactful for me in, you know, in my career uh, based off of what I could find there and just the pure excitement of, of visiting there and, and finding just gems. Kyle K.P. Riley grew up in Philadelphia. He's a hip-hop fan who would later get into mixtape distribution. To me, that area was one of the most unique experiences as a teenager. They always had the best, you know, replica handbags, the best VHSs that were in, you know, theaters. 
But, you know, for me, that was the only place that I could really discover new and exclusive music that I knew that, you know, friends back home just have never heard. And it was there that KP discovered a brand new kind of mixtape. This would be an important development on the road to Drake making his So Far Gone mixtape. But back then, G-Unit were an anomaly. Most artists needed a cosign from a DJ to get noticed. And DJs were more than just cutting up tracks and hollering over the music. They were playing exclusive songs that stoked excitement for upcoming projects by popular artists. In fact, the labels themselves were supplying the DJs with music to promote their artists. Back in the day, I was a DJ myself who received promotional records from most of the major labels. And it was kind of understood that those same records could potentially make it onto my mixtapes and also help generate excitement for their artists. So while technically the sale of these tapes wasn't really legit, the labels were in on the game. But the mixtape game kept getting bigger and bigger. According to the Recording Industry Association of America, album quality mixtape releases from high profile rappers generated somewhere between 150 to 250 million annually by the end of 2006. And perhaps the most important mixtape producer was DJ Drama. Here's DJ Mars again. We went to college together. He and I met one day, I was walking to class and he approached me, he's like, yo, my name's Tyree, I'm from Philly. You know, I'm, I think he was a freshman at the time. And he was like, yo, I asked one of my peoples who was a student here as well, who I should reach out to in terms of the DJ market. He told me, you know, I should reach out to you. Now, Drama was already making mixtapes and selling them on campus. In between classes, you know, I would pretty much set up on the strip, which was, you know, the central location on Clark Atlanta University's campus. I was my own entity. So basically I was making like a hip hop tape. I was making an R&B tape. I was making a reggae tape. And, you know, amongst that, I made, you know, Neo Soul had became a genre in that time. And, you know, it was definitely something that I, I loved. Some of the best mixtapes I ever heard in my life came from that series. And so how, how does DJ Drama develop into the, the uh, DJ Drama we know now? He basically took DJ Who Kid, 50 Cent's DJ, he took Who Kid's method of making an artist-driven tape. He basically took that same game plan and applied it to artists in the South. Here's DJ Drama. So, you know, here I was in the South. You know, I felt like the South wasn't getting its just due when it came to lyricism. So that was one of the things that I wanted to focus early on on Gangsta Grills. Yeah, Gangsta Grills. Dedication to... DJ Drama's Gangsta Grills tapes became legendary. Initially, he featured multiple MCs, but he would go on to make something like 150 mixtapes, each profiling a single artist. And these tapes were hugely popular. I feel like we all helped each other's career. You know, I created a platform for Wayne. He didn't have to worry about his hook. That was just him spitting on another nigga's beat and destroying it. You know what I'm saying? Here's DJ Mars again. Drama's marketing on his tapes was 10 times out of 10, his mixtape cover looked better than that particular artist's album cover. So his packaging was incredible. Um, his distribution was incredible. He just saw that, okay, now 
the South literally has something to say, I'm going to package their mixtapes in a way that's going to make them look omnipotent. DJ Drama built an empire on mixtapes like Young Jeezy's Trap or Die, and his tapes featured hip-hop artists on The Verge. We make quality street music. Drama became a kingmaker, and it got to the point that everyone who was associated with DJ Drama was guaranteed success. Which makes what happened next all the more strange. Investigators say they've collected these illegal CDs. From here, they'll take them to evidence, and then eventually, they'll be destroyed. Authorities seized all of the company's CDs, computers, the recording equipment, money, bank statements, and even their cars. And I remember, like, I was very, very calm at the time because I just figured, like, this is a mix-up. One of the officers has some paperwork in front of me. He says, Tyree Simmons. You're being arrested for bootlegging and racketeering under the RICO law. And I'm just like dumbfounded, like, what? This has got to be a mistake. Authorities say the two men arrested for making and selling illegal CDs are 27-year-old Donald Cannon and 28-year-old Tyree Simmons, also known as DJ Drama and DJ Cannon. The first authority we hear from on the Fox News coverage of the raid is not from the SWAT team or the local police. It's Matt Kilgo, an official with the Recording Industry Association of America, the RIAA. These guys are actively advertising online. They've got a website that they're advertising from. That's where you place your order, and that's how the orders are shipped out. The RIAA worked closely with local authorities to try and take down drama. In fact, it was RIAA employees who carted away the 80,000 CDs from Drama Studio for inspection. But the bizarre thing is that this was the organization that represented the very record labels who relied on DJ Drama and DJ Don Cannon to promote their artists. And this isn't the first time this has happened either. In Toronto, back in 1999, there was an infamous raid on record stores in the city. But according to Kevin Barton, who was head of the Urban Music Department at Universal Music Canada... In that instance, it was actually a case of Universal's legal department not being aware of the relationship between the label and the mixtape DJs. So we had to explain to them that we, as the urban music department, were well aware that we were servicing these DJs and that some of these DJs were actually putting out these mixtapes. So it was really one of those cases of one hand just not knowing what the other were doing. It was on a malicious intent. But it's not clear if that's the reason behind the raid on DJ Drama. Here's how DJ Mars sees it. Obviously, piracy issues and whatnot, issues between them and the RIAA, but I never knew what the core reason was because for something like that, this is me theorizing, for something like that to happen, someone has to make a huge complaint, right? So who's the someone that's going to make a huge complaint? Is the record label, right? But the funny thing is, at that time in their career, they were the marketing plan for record labels. The marketing plan would be, let's pay drama them to make a mixtape and we'll flood the street with a mixtape. So it, it, it kind of was a contradiction. So who made the phone call? It had to have been record labels. It had to be, that's, that had to be the igniter. 
In the end, the charges against DJ Drama and Don Cannon couldn't be proven and were ultimately dropped. But DJ Drama says the impact was huge. It was a day to game change at that moment because, you know, obviously, like, I was the top of the food chain at the time. Like, I was the mixtape king. Like, they took drama down. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I wasn't known for, for being a bootlegger or, you know, I'm, I'm getting checks directly from, from the labels and I'm working on my debut album at, for Atlantic Records, you know, when all this happened. So it was like other DJs who were making mixtapes was like, man, fuck that. Like, if they're going to get drama, nobody's safe. So, you know, it really was a it was a blow to to the whole mixtape industry at the time. It completely stopped the money on the street level. From that point on, from my vantage point, record labels stopped paying DJs to make mixtapes for promotional use. That stopped. On a large scale, it, it dried up. I don't think another national mixtape DJ was born after that. So the next thing was, okay, well, the, the music is still out there. How are these kids going to get it? You just couldn't go to the flea market and buy one. So what's next? Give it away for free. On an evening in early December 2018, the young CEO of a cryptocurrency exchange reportedly dies while on his honeymoon in India. This death is not announced to customers for another month. And when they're told Gerald Cotton is the only person to hold the passwords to their funds, conspiracy theories grow, leaving some to wonder, could Gerald Cotton still be alive? Honeymoon, moving the body, all the missing money. It was like, but what happened? A Death in Cryptoland. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. It really just started out of a place to share music with friends locally that, you know, you didn't have to drive to their house or drive, you know, to another state to, to see them. Here's KP again. He's the guy who used to travel from Philly to Manhattan as a kid to buy mixtapes on Canal Street. A year before DJ Drama's office and studio was raided, high-speed internet became a thing, and KP started uploading mixtapes online for his friends. You know, ripping the whole file to your computer and then individually tracking it out into MP3s, individually naming the files, Scanning the artwork, nowadays it probably would take five minutes to do it, where back then it was a, you know, maybe an hour or two job. You didn't have to travel to New York anymore to buy mixtapes. Now they were free and available to anyone in the world with internet access. KP called his mixtape website datpiff.com. And when DJ Drama was arrested in 2007, KP saw a spike in traffic to his site. I would say almost every A&R at every label, probably part of their job was to search DatPiff and see, you know, what's trending, what is, is hot this week, what um, are people talking about, what is DatPiff featuring. This new method of delivery for hip-hop meant that you would start seeing a lot more mixtapes where people, because the music was being distributed for free, didn't have to spend as much resources on procuring beats. Rawia Kamir is a culture writer and editor. Because, it, you know, these weren't always albums that were for sale. Um, it meant that people could produce music at a far faster clip than, than they previously did. Um, it also meant that the audience for, for the music seemed to have grown significantly. 
it was growing, it was morphing culturally, um, it was reaching new audiences, it was absorbing and also dictating some of the cultural trends that we would come to see over the subsequent years. The raid removed the traditional mixtape DJ from the equation, making the artist the new focal point. They now dominated the digital mixtape game, and unsigned artists looking for a break figured they had nothing to lose by uploading their tapes for free. And as mixtapes migrated online, there was a demand for digital sites that could help fans navigate all this new content. These influential hip-hop music blogs formed a coalition they called the New Music Cartel. So what does this all mean for the up-and-coming Toronto hip-hop artist Drake? Well, with the old way of distributing tapes becoming obsolete, blogs, MySpace, and message boards were going to be critical to Drake's rise. My name is Carla Moy, a.k.a. Hustle Girl, and I am a visual designer slash DJ. Hustle Girl is the creator of All Things Fresh, the early influential Drake fan website that she started when she was very young. Hustle Girl moved with her family to Canada from the Republic of Congo in 1995. Well, just like any other immigrant parents, they wanted me to become a either a doctor, a lawyer, any sort of job like that. But uh, what they didn't realize is that when I was about nine, my dad instilled a little art pill or whatever in me. He was in school, like learning how to build websites. And when he would come home and do his assignment, he would do it with us. So I learned how to code HTML. I was like eight or nine years old. And that really, really, really stuck with me. Hustle Girl's interest began way back in the early days of the internet, before social media like Facebook and Twitter. And if you remember what the internet looked like in the 90s... There was a lot of GIFs and like rotating images and sparkles and glitter. So I would look up tutorials on Google and this was before YouTube. So this is text tutorials with screenshots. I started making my own banners and one day someone asked me to design one for them. I was 12 by that time and they paid me $5 on PayPal. And that that's what jump-started my career, just getting paid at being 12 and making $5, like, that's a lot of money. <laughs> so your, par- your parents didn't know? I don't think they knew. Things were changing. Music was fairly available on the internet. And Hustle Girl dived right in, building websites, designing mixtape art. She was only 14, but was already part of that first generation of digital natives who knew how to brand themselves and build businesses online. And that's how she met Drake. The city is mine. me. You know how the story go. Pull up, range roll, go chick, roll. And I play myself in the stereo. I remember listening to the radio. I was listening to Flow, and I heard the track of City is Mine. And it was, for me, what caught me, what I thought was cool was that he was spelling out the city in his um, chorus. And I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. Like, he's repping for Toronto. Who's this person? And you go and you Google to see who Drake is, you're not finding too much information. But, you know, you Google Drake, City is Mine, and you're like, oh, this is Jimmy Brooks from the Grassy. He makes music. That's pretty cool. From that song is what got me to start an online fan club for his music. And why that name? Uh, well, he was already shouting out All Things Fresh in his music and ATF. Like, that was his crew before OVO. You don't know me. You don't know us. We go by the name of ATF. And any previous affiliation, they know to hold their tongue and I spare them humiliation. He didn't have a click. I didn't want it to be like Drake-licious or any of those stupid <laughs> names that people... It's so, like, 
It's so funny what fan sites names used to be at the time. They I didn't want anything like that. And I'm like, hey, what about something that he always mentions in his songs? All Things Fresh. I'll just name it that. So by 2009, when Drake was getting ready to release So Far Gone, he was confident that he didn't need to do it the traditional way. It would be fans, tastemakers really, like Hustle Girl, who would help him spread the word. Once upon a time, you know, women and especially young women and teenage girls in particular were, and I, I suppose they continue to be, derided as fans and sort of written off as hysterical, um, you know, unserious, um, aesthetics obsessed um, sort of participants of music culture. But people like Hustle Girls, for example, were really um, uh, instrumental in creating these new narratives for artists that weren't receiving um, fair play in the traditional or mainstream music press. So you can sort of see them um, creating these avenues where fans um, could directly interact with artists, but could also act as independent sort of arms of publicity and marketing. Um, and branding even on behalf of artists like Drake, who emerged um, into this sort of new uh, gold rush territory of the internet. And it's something that back in 2009, he was highly aware he could use to his advantage. You know, we have this tool called the internet now, us, like us young rappers. All of us sort of up and comers, I guess you could say, our, our fan bases and our, our buzzes are, you know, stemming from the from these blogs and all these different things. I think he didn't really care about traditional promo. Mm -hmm. um, he wasn't signed. Um, he definitely had a lot of creative freedom. And I personally think he just went against everything everyone said he couldn't do. And just being there at the right time and being prepared for the jump of the internet. Um, and also him having his own website and October's very own and him posting his own music whenever he wanted to, him having his own personal engineer rather than like a, a, a label assigned engineer. You know, all, all those little things make a difference. If he wants to record a song tomorrow, he could put it out also tomorrow. Come on, man, future in the house. It's coming, I'm telling you, Thursday. Thursday, octoberisverion.blogspot.com. I'm telling you, get it on Ben Baller. Get it on Hot Blog. Not right. Shout out to Not Right. It's coming, so far gone. Thursday. You know what it is, Drizzy Drake. I got you. LA. I got you. I got you. On February 13th, 2009, at 3 a.m., a little bit later than he originally said it was going to happen, Drake makes So Far Gone available on his OVO blog. Best I Ever Had emerges as a breakout hit from the mixtape and goes on to become one of the songs of the summer of 2009, eventually reaching number two on the Billboard Hot 100. At the time, it was the rare Billboard Top 5 single to be released from a mixtape. And incredibly, later that year, an official retail version of So Far Gone was released by a newly signed Drake, while it was still available for free online. It sold 75,000 copies in one week. It's the turning point in Drake's career. On May 13, 2009, Drake's homecoming tour touched down in Toronto. This was not only Drake's first major tour as an artist, it was the very first of many, many sold-out Drake shows in his hometown. 
and it was a pretty monumental night for many Toronto hip-hop fans, including myself. This right here is the greatest city in the fucking world. I want you to know that. And on behalf of me, I think they're ready. I remember looking at the line outside when I got to the venue and seeing local artists, DJs, promoters, journalists, basically a who's who of Toronto's music industry. Now, these are people used to walking right past the line and right into whatever event they're attending. Movers and shakers patiently waiting with everyone else to get into the Drake show. Why? Because they knew how big of a moment this was and they wanted to be a part of it. And once we all got in and the show began, it didn't take long for everyone to be really thankful they were here to witness this moment. And what a moment it was. Drake called this his homecoming tour. And on the heels of the success of So Far Gone, that's exactly what this show felt like. But for those that understood this moment for what it foreshadowed, they would have also seen this as Drake's return before leaving for good because the Drake we would meet later would be a very different Drake. But also because of everything, all of us, mainstream hip-hop included, would be very different after So Far Gone. That tape literally signified the changing of the guards, like it's a new era. At the start of this episode, J. Cole talked about how So Far Gone marked the end of the old mixtape era and changed his approach. According to DJ Drama, Drake and J. Cole were part of a whole new generation of emerging hip-hop artists. People like Wiz Khalifa, Kendrick Lamar, Wale, Big Sean, and Kid Cudi making mixtapes in a digital era. They were taking different approach, and they were not necessarily having a Gangsta Grills or even having a DJ on their tapes, but they were still making mixtapes. It was a new street album, you know what I'm saying? It was like, all right, we don't necessarily have to go to Canal Street anymore because all this shit lives online, so we're going to release this tape digitally. Here's DJ Mars again. The digital side of it allows that artist to put himself in front of the entire universe because everyone has access to it digitally. So I like where it's going. I wish the DJ was was back in the mix, but I get it. it those days are over. An artist doesn't need a DJ. He just needs access to a popular website and he needs a studio to record and then he upload his music and then boom. Oh, it was totally a game changer. I think that looking back, it's probably one of the most important mixtapes in the history of mixtapes in the sense that it was, from my perspective, the first mixtape that was really just an album. You know, it sort of made mixtape a technicality rather than a guiding sentiment you know like it was a mixtape in the sense that it was you know accessible for free but it was really more of an album in its um in its tone and its sort of cultural impact and in, in the, the way it landed um in the music space according to rawia what's remarkable about so far gone is not just that drake released the mixtape as an unsigned artist on his own blog it's not just that it sounded like an album it's not just that the mixtape was available for free anywhere in the world. It's that it captured the spirit of discovery that all good mixtapes have, but it also set the stage for how we listen to music today. 
when you listen to So Far Gone, it's it's such a clear left turn from what he was doing before in the sense that he really was emblematic of the dissolution of genre, the dissolution of culture barriers um, that we had grown so accustomed to. And it was sort of a predictor of the sort of Spotify culture mashup that we would come to see as a staple of, of playlists in the years to come. mixtapes were always supposed to be about curating the coolest new music, the latest innovations. And we've tracked how DJs were those curators, then replaced by music blogs and savvy fans. And then artists themselves took control of their own music. Today, you could argue that it's all been replaced by an algorithm, that digital streaming platforms like Spotify and Apple Music have killed the mixtape. But a case could also be made that many compelling aspects of mixtapes are embedded in these streaming services today. After all, Drake is Spotify's most streamed artist of the past decade. So perhaps the mixtape served its purpose. It helped take hip-hop from Park Jams in New York to become the world's most dominant music genre. This podcast was produced by Anupa Mystery, Del Cowie, Josh Block, and me. Mixing and sound design by Andrew Norton. Judy Zayigu is our digital producer. Story editing by Chris Oak. Our consulting producers are Dalton Higgins and Passant Matar. Original music composed by Boombox Sound. Transcription by Kelsey Cueva. Tanya Springer is our senior producer. And Arif Norani is our executive producer. I'm Ty Harper. On the next episode of This Is Not A Drake Podcast, Drake is known as a nice guy, but is that progress for hip-hop? Like, when you're labeled as a nice guy, it makes people automatically assume that you're a good guy and it softens the blow of like what people would consider to be like weird or sketchy or like not cool behavior. You know what I mean? For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.